This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on iOS developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average iOS developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the iFreaks link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash iFreaks. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 141 of the iFreaks show. This week on our panel, we have Alondo Brewington. Hello from North Carolina. Andrew Madsen. Hello from Salt Lake City. I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv. And this week, we're going to talk about since we had a new year turnover, of course, we're already most of the way through January at this point. But since we had a new year turnover, uh, how has the Apple and iOS ecosystem uh, changed last year? And what do we expect to see this year? I think we can also throw Mac in there and just talk about Apple in general. But, you know, we, we talked last week, I think it was, about open source Swift. And I think that's that might be an interesting place to start and maybe summarize stuff that we didn't bring in last time. I'm also curious because I don't think you were there, Alondo, as to what your thoughts are with open source Swift and where that's taking us with Apple. Well, I, I definitely am excited about what's happening with open source Swift. And I don't, I'm, I haven't been keeping up with all of the, the latest changes. I've followed the GitHub repo. And I'm, the, the biggest prospect, though, is to me just being able to use Swift on a, a, some other platforms. I know that sounds a little bit greedy, um, but I, if I could use write Swift, uh, for, you know, Android development or even just as a way that I extend my ability to use it on some other platforms like Windows as a teaching tool, it would be really, really nice. I'm running into some roadblocks right now. We're trying to uh, help some younger people with Swift coding and uh, having to have a Mac. It's really sort of putting a damper on my ability to do certain things. Gotcha. But yeah, I mean, that that's definitely interesting. It's funny because I talk to a lot of people in the JavaScript community and what they tend to bring up is that you can write apps in JavaScript that take advantage of JavaScript bridges to, you know, like JavaScript core. You also have JavaScript bridges in the same way on Android devices, and they're working on getting, you know, into things with, I forget what the JavaScript engine is on Windows Phone, but getting into all of these platforms, you can just do it with JavaScript, and they can abstract away the differences enough to where you can do it. And this is not the hybrid app web view. It's actual native stuff where the processing and, and event handling is all done in JavaScript. And so with Swift going open source and possibly being able to be used in some of these other ecosystems, it really is exciting to think that people who have been writing iOS apps for a while can, to a certain degree, then take what they're doing and just apply it to Android without actually having to go learn Java or Dalvik or whatever the heck they call that thing now. I think the big thing there for me anyway is that I don't have to write JavaScript because I'm <laughs> not exactly a fan of doing that. I, I have heard that sentiment from many people, and I've heard as many sentiments the other way. I don't have to go learn Objective-C or Swift. So it's kind of funny, but yeah. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, I think a lot of us feel like JavaScript is successful because it's the language of the web, not because it's actually a good language. And um, to some degree, that's probably true of Objective-C. It's 
popular because it's on iOS, but with Swift, although I actually really like Objective C, but with Swift, you know, that, that this is Apple having the chance to start a language without a lot of the encumbrance that they had with Objective C or that even JavaScript has, right? Like Node uses JavaScript because web developers use JavaScript, not because JavaScript is actually a great choice for that, that, uh, application. So Swift is kind of Apple's, um, chance to mm-hmm. start over and to design a language that's actually really good for what it's in, what it's being used for. Yeah, there are a lot of changes coming in JavaScript that make it a whole lot more palatable, but I definitely agree with you that it definitely has some history that they're not going to be able to completely erase in the way that you have to do things. So it'll, it'll be interesting yeah, to see it, where things go here within the next year. Yeah, agreed. And to your point, I mean, I think it's a chance to evaluate Swift on its merit as well, because it's, it's not going to get that pass of like, oh, this is the, the lingua franca of this platform. It's like if people are going to adopt it, it's going to be because it's preferable to, you know, sort of the entrenched players. Yep. I think Swift going open source beyond just the language, that kind of signals a change uh, in, in Apple that has been going on probably, you know, since Steve Jobs died. It seems like maybe it's accelerated a little bit. And that is that Tim Cook really has instituted some changes at Apple culture wise. Some things have not changed and other things really have changed. And I, th- I think there has been somewhat of an opening up and a, I don't know, a willingness to work with others where it makes sense. Like, of course, Swift going open source, but even just hearing Apple executives sort of make the rounds in the press and on podcasts and, mm-hmm. and that kind of thing just never really happened before. Yeah, I have to say that was actually surprising. I was uh, <laughs> I was actually a little shocked when that started happening for a company that's been so secret for so long. It's refreshing to see, you know, them start to open up. Yeah, but the thing is, is that these VPs and other executives can come out and they can talk about what we do and how we do it without talking about what we're doing and what we're inventing. And so, you know, there's definitely some of that. The other thing is, and this may make some listeners a little bit uncomfortable, but I have to wonder a little bit, and I'm going to do this verbally, I have to wonder a little bit if Apple is going to continue to be the innovation pusher. Uh, with iPhone, they really did. They they revolutionized things. iPod, they, they revolutionized the way things work. iTunes, though it still has its issues, I will admit, it really kind of changed the way that you interface with your devices. The Apple Watch came out well after a lot of other watches were out. And sure, a lot of those watches came out on the rumor that Apple was creating it. But by the time the Apple Watch came out, it really wasn't that innovative. You know, it did a lot of the same things that a lot of the other devices do. Sure, it has a lot tighter and a lot nicer interface between it and the phone. But ultimately, I just don't see them leading the way the way that they did with the iPod and iPhone. And so when these executives go out, is there really that much to keep secret? Because the stuff coming up in the new iPhone and the stuff coming up in the new iOS, it's just not as mind-blowing as a new device category or a new way of doing things. I definitely think that's true. I think that the challenge for Apple, quite frankly, is it's going to be hard to keep moving that meter, you know, moving it further and further down and, and people continually saying, oh, this is innovation, this is innovation, without people sort of settling into a way, we're, we've sort of settled into a way that we interact with our devices now. And it would be pretty drastic to sort of move the ground from under the user's feet, as it were, uh, at this point, we were kind of settling into these different types of devices. I, I personally think that the watch, quite frankly, I, although I enjoy it, I can see how it's a bit underwhelming for a lot of users because it really isn't sort of this drastic change. Um, but that uh, sort of in, in some ways like the iPad and, and the way that it's being used 
it really it really depends on developers to sort of push the envelope and really change the way that people are going to uh, work with those devices. I don't know if we can de- really expect Apple to to do that for us. Yeah, I mean, to the point of iPad iPad came out and then, yeah, again, we got Android tablets and things like that. But iPad Pro, I, I just didn't feel like that was even that all that innovative. I mean, they saw the category basically get innovated by Microsoft, where Microsoft came out with the Surface Pro tablets that did a lot of the things that the iPad Pro does. And with their, uh, they have a pen device, which is similar to the Apple Pencil. And Apple said, oh, we should do something like that, too. And then they came out with it. Well, I think it's easy to forget in hindsight that Apple has very rarely actually created entirely new devices. The iPod was far from the first MP3 player. It was not the first MP3 player with a hard drive. It was the first one to be successful. And same with the iPhone. The iPhone was not the first smartphone. In fact, BlackBerry had higher market share than iPhone uh, for quite a while after the iPhone was released. The iPhone, of course, the, the UI was very innovative. But just as a device, when you only list features... It was maybe nothing to write home about, and I remember people complaining a lot that it was didn't didn't have 3G, it didn't have multimedia messaging, and all this other stuff that was actually pretty standard for a smartphone at the time. So I'm not so sure that just because the Apple Watch was not the very first smartwatch um, that that means that you know Apple is, has somehow changed. They've they've kind of had a long history of entering markets that were already established, but doing what they do well and and using that to you know to be successful, whether that will actually happen with the Apple watch or not is kind of still Mm -hmm. to be seen. Right. So I want to ask for your first predictions on the show. Do you think that iOS and iPhone are going and iPad, I guess too, are going to gain market share or lose market share over the next year? Or do you think they're going to hold pretty much steady? I think the first part there, as far as if the iPhone and, and uh, gaining share has a lot to do with uh, uh, emerging markets where it's available and the growth in those markets. I mean, I think quite frankly, uh, domestically, we're talking, we're running to a, a pretty saturated market where the, the growth, I don't expect a lot of growth here. I mean, you'll have the requisite people sort of like going through their own upgrade cycle, but that's about it. But in emerging markets, I think there is still a lot of opportunity. And, and, and from everything that I've read and seen that it's a desired device. So I think there's opportunity for growth there. A couple interesting things. Um, Apple's earnings call was yesterday, and they announced that sales uh, in India were up a lot, which is interesting because that's a huge uh, emerging market. And they also also said that sales in China were up. But along with that, their their guidance for next quarter is that iPhone sales as a whole will probably go down year over year for the very first time in history. So I do think, at least in developed countries, the market is already pretty saturated and any movement of market share really has to come at the expense expense of essentially Android users. You have to convince Android users to switch if you're going to get better market share like in the U.S. Because there's not this whole pool of people who just don't have a smartphone at all. And all you need to do is convince them to buy an iPhone. Um, that said, I think the numbers I've heard are that uh, you know a lot more people switch from Android to the iPhone than vice versa. So if the needle moves at all, it probably will move in favor of the iPhone in the U.S. But I don't think it's going to be a huge huge thing. I think the market is starting to get pretty stable. I mean, the the iPhone now is will be nine years old this year. And if you think about where the Mac was nine years after it came out, it was already pretty clear that the PC was the, you know, had the huge market share and Mac had the small market share and it didn't really change a lot after that. So I, I sort of, I mean, just my hunch is that as long as it's been long enough that the market has probably sort of reached its stable point, at least for the next decade or so. Interesting. 
Yeah, I, I tend to agree. I think I think the people who are in the Apple camp are going to stay there for the most part. I think people who are in the Android camp are going to stay there for the most part, unless there's some really compelling feature that makes it so that they want or need to switch for whatever reason. Yeah, I think those kind of shifts happen long term, and I don't know that you know even if even an amazing feature that came out on Android is that really going to convince you to ditch all of the apps you already have and all of this you know everything you've already built up by being in the Apple ecosystem or vice versa. Right. Yeah, that's the real power see, to me for for iOS or Apple is the ecosystem and, and sort of the, the deep integrations there. I've actually talked to some people who actually have had uh, Android devices that have moved and gotten iPhones, iOS devices this year. Uh, well, not this year, 2015. <laughs> and for that reason, they, they really like being able to not have to worry about where their information is. And, uh, you know, for all the little things that they complained about, you know, they decided, you know, this better, more robust ecosystem was a lot better than having maybe one or two features that they didn't have uh, and convince them to switch. I do think the Apple Watch in particular was one of the big stories of the year. It was the first completely new Apple product category since the iPad, I think, uh, which was in 2010. So it's been five years and it came right out of the gate. There was developer support for it. So it was interesting to us. Uh, that said, my impression has been that, you know, in large part, the app ecosystem on the Apple watch is not a big deal, at least right now. It just doesn't really work well enough. I know I'm not very interested in developing an app for it. And I barely, if, if at all really use uh, third party apps, I think I use dark sky. And then other than that, it's just the notifications from apps that are on my iPhone. But as far as actually running apps on my Apple watch, it's not something I really do because you wait so long for them to even start up. Yeah. I have to say that, you know, the biggest benefit to me is, is has been tracking fitness and and um, small notifications like you say um, I was about to buy a Fitbit when they announced the uh, release of the Apple watch and I just decided to hold off because again the, the the prospect of integrating you know my fitness info just was just more compelling so I was like okay it's worth it plus I have a watch you know something that I haven't had in a long time and so to me it was worth it but I can see how it may not be that compelling to a lot of people but I still hold I'm still pretty positive long term about the about it improving and, and us getting better apps as they improve the uh, watch os yeah I, I i mean i don't have an apple watch i have a pebble time steel and you know i'm pretty happy with it for a lot of the same reasons that you outlined it also tends to have better battery life but it doesn't have all of the sensors in it i think it mostly just goes off of the accelerometer in the watch and so by that it tracks my steps and movement and things like that uh, as well as my sleep where the Apple Watch actually has a uh, a pull, it, what do you call it? Where it tracks your pulse. Heart rate sensor. Yeah, heart rate sensor and things like that in it, where it's probably getting a little bit more detailed reading off of what's going on with you than, than my watch does. But, you know, I, I think it'll be interesting also to see what kinds of integrations come to iOS from devices that aren't Apple products. And we've already seen that sort of take off, and I, I don't, foresee that slowing down at all over the next few years. That's sort of interesting. I think one of the things that's really different now from, you know, 10 or 15 years ago is it used to be that if you bought a Mac, uh, getting, getting accessories or just other things that supported it, software and hardware was a little bit difficult. Everything was just sort of designed for Windows. Now, even though, even though Apple, you know, like, likes to really tightly control things, the, the Apple Watch and the iPhone are really closely integrated and they're able to do some things that other people aren't because of that. Pebble has always supported iOS, and I think Samsung, their smartwatches either support iOS or they've announced support for iOS, and that's kind of interesting to see these 
competitors. You know, Apple now is so powerful that even competitors are will support their platform. Yeah, I think it's Android Wear, which is a variation on Android, and all of those are built to support iOS and Android. Right, and Samsung's using their own OS called yeah. Tizen, um, but they, they announced uh, iOS support for that and for actually a bunch of stuff they're doing. Well, it seemed like uh, Motorola and Samsung and a lot of these others, you if you bought their watch, you you had to buy one of their phones. And so it's it's really interesting to see that they are opening up to these other systems. So what are we actually going to see on the iPhone? Um, I keep hearing rumors that they're going to get rid of the headphone jack in favor of just using the lightning connector. Is that going to happen this year? Well, I certainly won't be surprised, but I can't honestly say I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> That's about where I'm at. I mean, I've got three or four different uh, headsets that all have the quarter-inch jack on them. And... You know what's funny is the first – I don't know if too many people remember, but the original iPhone had a regular headphone jack, but it was recessed. Most headphone plugs would not plug into it, and you had to use an adapter. And I think I can't. I don't think Apple put the adapter in the box. Maybe they did. I can't remember now. But anyway, you could get an adapter from Apple, so you could plug in regular headphones into the original iPhone. And it, and so practically, it was actually sort of the same situation. And that annoyed me to no end. And I was so glad when the 3G came out and and fixed that, and you could just plug regular headphones in. So it seems like we're sort of going backward in that way. I know there are some advantages to to doing everything with the Lightning port. But personally, it seems to me like their idea is going to be you go in and buy an, an iPhone and you buy a pair of Beats headphones with a lightning plug. And I'm not really impressed. I'd, I'd really rather just keep the stuff I've got. But we'll see. It's, it certainly would be an Apple move. Yeah, you're right. And this may be the first time that I just, for that and other reasons, that I'm just going to wait. <laughs> that I won't get the new device when it comes out. Do you think there's going to be enough pressure to make them switch back? No, Apple no. doesn't do that. <laughs> unless exactly. Unless the sales just dropped to zero, which they're not going to. I, Apple won't. I mean, they, they're famous for this kind of stuff, right? And it's not always a bad thing, but like the first iMac had no floppy drive, which was kind of crazy at the time. And, you know, they dropped optical drives from their stuff earlier than a lot of people, I think, would have thought it was a good idea. But, you know, in hindsight, it was fine. I don't have an optical drive in any of my Macs now, and it just doesn't really affect me. But, yeah, we'll see. I mean, the headphone jack has been around for 50 years or something, and it works fine. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. It makes sense. I mean, I mean, the move makes sense, even in foresight, but it's just going to be, it's just aggravating to have to go through yet another a period of sort of like, okay, I've got to update a certain set of cables or devices. I've got to get these new things or adapters. The thing that's a little interesting to me is why you require lightning for the headphone jack and not just use Bluetooth for everything. Cause it seems like that has already been the push, right? To have yes. Bluetooth headphones and the Apple watch, for example, can use Bluetooth headphones. Well, and when I'm out running, uh, my hand doesn't get caught in the cord on my Bluetooth head- headphones. Yeah, exactly. I don't know. I mean, whatever they do, obviously there's going to be a $29 adapter you can buy that takes the lightning port and turns it into a regular headphone jack. And Yeah. I mean, my, my understanding that. and the thing that ticks me off about it a little bit is that the rumor is, is that they're going to take the headphone jack out so they can get more space in the phone. So it doesn't actually in- in- improve my experience at all with the phone. Well, yeah, Chuck, I agree with you because uh, I don't really want them to make the iPhone thinner. I want them to make it have longer battery life. Yes, with you on that. And I think a lot of people feel that way, but it remains to be seen whether we'll do that. Of course, if removing the headphone jack means they can give me another five hours of battery life, then I'm all for it. Oh, totally. So are there other features you think they're going to add to the phones to make them nicer, better, faster, 
longer lived. I haven't read a lot of rumors this this time around, and, and it's a little early for that too because yeah. the phone doesn't come out for you know presumably it won't come out until September or October. I think it's if they follow the cycle that they've followed since the three G came out, then it'll be a new design because the six it'll be the seven, so it'll have a new physical design. Should be faster, better graphics. I saw a rumor that it will have dual camera, two cameras in the back. Mm. from some company or technology that they acquired. Uh, I don't, I didn't really read the details, but uh, I do think Apple's push for better camera quality on, on the iPhone is a long-term thing that they intend to keep at. I think they take it really seriously and you know, that that's a good thing. And I think it's also a, a compelling, uh, uh, among several reasons every year, it's a compelling reason to upgrade your iPhone because you get a better camera and it is for most people, I think their smartphone is their camera, you know? Yeah, it is for me. Yeah, I, I actually, I actually have a serious camera, a few serious cameras, but ninety nine point nine percent of the time, I don't want to carry those around, and the iPhone does a great job. So, it really, you know, it is my de facto camera, unless I'm going somewhere where I, you know, or wanting to take serious pictures. But most of the time, that's not true. So, the better they can do with that, the bigger competitive advantage they have, and I, I think they've done a good job so far. There are obviously good cameras in other phones, but in general. You can buy an iPhone and know that if you're not getting the very best camera out there, you're getting you're getting an excellent one anyway. Well, you're making me feel a lot less serious as a photo taker because all I have is the iPhone. No, I don't think that means you're not serious at all. I, I just think, uh, I mean, I think for most people, they want to take snapshots of their family and things they're doing and, you know, vacations they go on. And at this point, the iPhone is really good enough for most of that. You know, unless you're yeah, taking yeah. sports photography or really low light stuff or, you know, whatever, but most people aren't doing that. Yeah, or you're zooming in on things that are really small and you still want the high detail or whatever. Yeah, if you're uh, taking pictures of wildlife or something, you're not going to do it with your iPhone, but. Yep. I'm, I'm also wondering, you know, with, uh, it seems like iOS, what are we looking at now? 10? Or, yes. you know, iOS 9 point whatever that has awesome new features maybe that I, I guess it would come out in iOS 10. But I'm curious, you know, do, do you see anything changing there? I mean, I keep hearing people asking for specific things like on the Android phone, you can actually put widgets on your home screen. Or I, I keep hearing people saying, well, it's just time for a refresh on that anyway, because there are other things we wish it would do or w different ways that we wish it would work. Do you see them changing that anytime soon? Personally, I don't foresee any fundamental change to the way iOS works. Um, if you think about it, they're really, even on the Mac, the Mac came out in 84. And if you put a the Mac UI from 84 next to one from today, obviously the one today is way higher resolution and you know looks way better and refined and everything, but... Uh, it's still a bunch of icons on a desktop and a menu bar up top and, you know, mm -hmm. so... I don't think it's going to be anything too big. I do think, though, the last uh, oh, two or three releases, we've sort of seen this move toward opening up opening things besides apps up to developers, which is something for a long time Android has had and Apple and, and iOS hasn't, like widgets on the home screen or custom keyboards, that kind of thing. And, and iOS now has support for custom keyboards and not widgets on the home screen, but in the today view in the drawer that comes down and essentially what you would call like a photo plugin that other apps can use and that sort of thing. They added support for custom audio, audio units. They're called audio plugins, which have been on the Mac forever, but 
they added those to iOS and iOS 9. So I won't be surprised to see kind of a further expansion of that, of the kinds of things that you can do to extend other apps and to extend system functionality without, without your only option being writing an app. And I certainly, I certainly hope they do that. It just makes it possible to make more and more powerful capabilities available as a developer. But I don't have any specific predictions in that regard. It's a little hard to say. I think, you know, I think Swift is probably taking up a lot of resources in terms of uh, Apple's work on software. We'll, we'll, on that note, do you think we'll see like frameworks coming out rewritten in Swift anytime soon? My hunch is that we will not see it this year, but next year. The The big issue right now is that Swift is not ABI stable. So it's not binary stable, meaning that if an app is linked with one version of the framework and then it's installed on a device with a newer version of the framework, it won't work. And for that reason, when you build an app using Swift right now, the Swift standard libraries get bundled into the, into the app itself. But that doesn't really work well when you're, when, you know, system frameworks are written using Swift. So binary stability is part of the Swift 3.0 release, which presumably will come out at WWDC. And I think it will take another year for that to be usable, but I could be wrong. I, I might, it, it might be that all they need is 3.0 to be done and have that available and, and they can start doing system frameworks in Swift. I think there's also the fur, a further complication on the Mac where you have 32-bit apps and they support the, you might call the legacy, the old Objective-C runtime. I'm not exactly sure how that all shakes out, but there are actually some pretty serious complications for using Swift for system stuff on Apple's part right now. And I think they're working hard on fixing those, but they've still got some work ahead of them. And Craig Federighi, when he was kind of doing the rounds talking about open source Swift back in December, he he mentioned some of that about, uh, you know, he, he kind of at least alluded to the fact that Apple's internal use of Swift is fairly limited for stuff, at least for stuff they're shipping. I think um, they're using it for internal tools and, you know, whatever they can use it for. But there are those sorts of roadblocks for using it more widely for system frameworks and system apps and all that. I do think that Swift is really the biggest story in the Apple, you know, Apple ecosystem for 2015. It came out in 2014, but it really sort of came into its own in 2015, I think, with the release of Swift 2.0. I think that was the the point where a lot of developers looked at Swift and, you know, a lot of the a lot of the downsides that were there in Swift 1.0 had been fixed and it really started to become an attractive option. Uh, I know that for me personally, I and and at my job, we didn't really start using Swift in a in a really serious way until Swift 2.0 shipped. And, the same here. We we were the same. Yeah. Well, I don't think I don't think I heard a whole lot about anybody using it until you know there were kind of the the bleeding edge people that you know just wanted to be in it and on top of it. But yeah, this year was the year that we really heard about people really going for it. I've been writing Objective-C for 10 years, a little over 10 years, and I have not written any Objective-C since probably the, the middle of November, which is a pretty big change for me, you know? And it's not because I changed jobs or anything. I'm working on the same stuff, but Swift has just gotten good enough that it's really attractive and nice to work with. And um, I think that's true of a, of a large portion of Apple ecosystem developers. I, d- I don't think it's everyone, though. I think there are people who have not switched to Swift, and I think 2016 will just be, uh, we'll just see more of that, more people switching to Swift, and Objective C will become less and less important. That's pretty impressive. I mean, we are at a point now where, I mean, pretty much all of our new files are in Swift, but I still do a lot of coding uh, in Objective C. It's probably about, honestly, about probably 75, 25 right now, Objective C and Swift. Uh, hoping to change that, though, as we move forward. 
Well, I don't want to oversell it. As a company, we're still using a lot of Objective-C because of all the code we've already got. But it's just been, for me personally, for the last few months, I've been working on something that was basically brand new from scratch. And so I had no reason not to just start with Swift from the very beginning. And okay, Andrew, stop being refreshing. modest. We know you don't write bugs, and so you never have to actually revisit the Objective-C <laughs> code. <laughs> yeah, right. No, I don't write bugs, but some of my coworkers do. So I have to fix. No, I'm yeah, just that's kidding. what I thought. That's what. I thought. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We we uh, we have you know hundreds of thousands of lines probably of Objective C that we are certainly not going to rewrite or throw away anytime soon. So maintenance and working on new features is going to require Objective C for some time to come. But more and more and more of our development will switch to Swift as time goes on, and it's going maybe faster than I would have expected. You know, in 2014 when Swift was first announced. So do either of you think that Siri's going to learn English this year? You know, Siri actually does really well for me, except for names. It gets, you know, it's it, names are hard. I don't I have mean, major issues with it. I don't have major issues with it now, but that's going to change in a week because I'm going to stop speaking to Siri in English as soon as Saturday. So I'll tell you how well she does in Spanish starting next week. Do you, do you already speak Spanish, Alondo? Uh, I was really good, and I'm really bad, and I think uh, <laughs> probably February. By February, I'll, I'll at least be back to what I would consider a decent enough to uh, d- decent conversational Spanish again. Well, I'll be interested to hear how it goes. I've never tried using Siri in another language, and I know Siri is actually not a, not available in all that many languages. It's kind of only the big ones, you know, the Big Ten or whatever. But do you speak uh, another I, language, Andrew? I speak Japanese. I think Siri can do Japanese. I should switch it on and try it sometime. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing if it's available in Italian. But yeah, I'll ask it for directions to something. And then next thing I know, I'll follow the directions for about 10 minutes. And I'm like, okay, this isn't right. And uh, I'll pull out the direction. And then it's like, well, okay, but I don't want to go to Texas. I just want to go to the, you know, the place I named that's in the town I'm in. Oh, yeah. Well, Siri actually doing what you ask is different than understanding what you said. And I I do sometimes have a problem with that. Yeah. The other one is that sometimes I'm like, uh, navigate to whatever. And so I expect it to open up the navigation and start navigating. No, it just finds the directions, doesn't tell me anything, and then sits there and waits for me to decide what I want. So there are st- definitely still issues there in my experience, but yeah. Yeah, I've had the same issue with names too as Andrew. Like, yeah. even when I have it, I do have it in Spanish currently, and I've had it like that way for a while. So, it, and it's easy to understand directions, but to tell it, especially when I'm making phone calls and I'm trying to refer to people inside of my address book, I've not quite figured out how to refer to my family and friends in a way that it understands like an English name with the Spanish <laughs> uh, pronunciation. So, we'll see. Yeah, that makes sense. I really want to switch it over now and see what it does. Uh, the other, the other thing that I am wondering a little bit about is they introduced like the, what did they call it? The long touch at the last WWDC. It's for force touch or 3D touch, depending on oh, which device you're on, okay. which is stupid because it's all the same thing. But, so um, 3D force touch. Are they going to add other gestures? Do you think to the system that may or may not require new hardware? Because the 3D touch on the phone definitely required new hardware. Well, I expect that the support for 3D Touch on iOS will, and, and probably OS 10 for that matter, will probably um, expand. So you'll be able to do more, you'll see more places in the system where it can be used. And I think maybe even more importantly than that, more and more th- third-party apps will 
will adopt it. I mean, that's already ongoing. Third-party apps have been adopting it and continue to. To be honest, I, I really like that feature. I use it quite a bit on my success. But that said, I don't think it's groundbreaking. You know, it's a small, small evolution. I have feature envy. Yeah, on I definitely think it's a, Yeah, it's a. I, I love it. It's a great feature on the on iOS devices. I turned it off on my Mac. I've, I've actually just found it too hard to sort of migrate my uh, practices to it, and I got frustrated. But on the iOS, I think it's really nice. And I, and as its implementation expands for different apps, uh, I, we're actually looking at ways to do it in our own app at work, uh, just to make certain functions a lot easier. Of course, there is a learning curve. But I think it's well worth. We're basically now just making sure we offer two ways to do something. You know, so one way is sort of like a navigational menu, and then another way is with the with the force touch. Yeah, right now, of course, it's only on the 6s and 6s plus, meaning you can't make some feature only be accessible with force touch, or you're cutting out a huge percentage of users. And I, I think Apple might even you know complain if you tried to submit something like that to the App Store. But that won't be true forever. So maybe it's a thing we're in three or four years when everybody has a 6S or, or better, uh, it can sort of become more important, more deeply ingrained. I don't know. I also wonder, do you think they're ever going to get to the point where you can actually install an app on your watch that doesn't require a phone app? Not with this watch, because it barely can do anything without a phone. I mean, it, it does have Wi-Fi connection, but only, you know, that's only active if you're on a known Wi-Fi network. So definitely yeah, not soon. Yeah, I would say no, but I'm also wondering how long before we actually get the next iteration of the watch, next hardware. I don't think it's coming this year. Well, the, room, the rumor is that it's coming in the fall, and there was one that it was coming in March, which I thought sounded ridiculous from the beginning. Fall, I could see, but is it really going to be? Is it going to be like a, you know, is it going to be Apple Watch Two or is it going to be Apple Watch One S? You know, I, nobody knows. And when I say One S, I mean like, is it really going to be a, a big revision, or is it? Are they just going to come out with some new case colors and? bands again i i don't i won't be too surprised if it's not a huge update because i i sort of feel like unlike a phone people really don't want to replace their 600 hundred dollar watch every year yeah that's true i mean i certainly don't yeah it's the most expensive watch, uh, well, there's watch there's, well a lot of watch people though that's not really but that's a small market of people but there are plenty i have a few uh relatives that are really they're watch people and those watches like they're, they're not that expensive compared to some of the other watches that they own. Oh yeah, no, I know, I know. I mean, among watch people, the the at least the cheaper Apple watches are not expensive. But for most people who are buying them, I think they're pretty expensive. And unless you, they do something really way better, they're not going to buy a new one every year. Because unlike the phone, they're not subsidized, right? You can upgrade your iPhone every two years and pay nothing, and you've been able to do that. You're not really paying nothing, but psychologically, you're paying nothing. You go into your carrier and say you want a new one, and you don't have to fork over any money. You just extend your contract or whatever. It's not going to be true on the watch. So it's going to be interesting to see. And I think the iPad has been like this, right, where the upgrade cycle has been a lot longer than it has been for the iPhone, and it has kind of hurt it's kind of hurt iPad sales. That's one thing that I thought sure. was interesting that changed as far as phones and carriers is that uh, not only now do a lot of the carriers offer a month-to-month deal that basically you pay a certain amount of the payment against the phone, you know, and you're not in a contract. And then Apple basically came out and did the same thing. So are we going to see more financing and purchasing plan options from Apple than we've seen in the past? You know, where you can now basically get your iPhone and you just pay them a certain amount every month and then you get the new upgrades forever. Uh, I actually think so. I think that I think 
part of an earlier discussion about sort of the saturation with these devices and with Apple's moving the services, I think that they are thinking long term, seeing sort of the, the, that saturation at play and moving to these other areas where they may be financing everything from, you know, these watches to iPads. So eventually, of course, you know, you're, you're getting your TV service and, and things like that from Apple. So that I, I see the company sort of moving into a, a larger space and playing a bigger role as, in, in having direct access to the consumer, which I mean, they prefer, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing I kind of wanted to talk about a little bit, which is sort of pure speculation, but it's something that's been on my mind, and particularly as a Mac developer, is I don't know if you guys have seen in the past several months especially, but really actually since it launched, there's there have been a lot of complaints about the Mac App Store. I mean, about the App Store in general, including on iOS, but the situation is way worse on the Mac App Store than it is on the iOS App Store, where... You know, in in large part, it feels like Apple is not doing a lot of the things that would really help developers make viable businesses on the App Store. And uh, one of the latest sort of developments in that story was that Apple screwed something up and let a certificate expire. I don't think I fully understand the technical details of what happened, but the, the, the end result was that you'd go, there was a day where you'd start your Mac up and click on an app that you bought on the App Store and it would say this application is damaged, blah, 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 won't run. And it was actually the app store's fault, you know, and there, there were some workarounds, but they weren't great. And I dealt with it as a, as a developer that sells an app on the Mac app store. I dealt with customer support for that. And it was really lousy to have to email people and, you know, say, well, this is actually Apple's fault. Here's how you fix it. And they don't believe you that it's Apple's fault because why would it be Apple's fault? Of course, it's your fault. But of course, the lack of paid upgrades and the lack of free trials and all that, uh, have been a big deal. There was a development recently where Phil Schiller, where, where Apple did some reorganization internally. And I think uh, Phil Schiller now is essentially in charge of the the divisions that, that work on the App Store. And it has made me a little hopeful and, and sort of wonder if um, perhaps there will be some, you know, developer-focused App Store improvements this year or sometime in the near future. It would be pretty nice if that were to happen. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't have an app in the Mac App Store. I'm hoping to change that in the next year. And I've been keeping track of some of that, and I've seen people with frustrations that have decided that they're just going to remove their apps and sell them directly. And I'm actually wondering, with you as someone who does have an app, is it worth the 30%? I mean, I think, you know, I think it's a lot easier to make that decision in, in the iOS app store. You can say, yeah, you know, I don't have to deal with certain things, and it works fairly well. I mean, it, you may have some gripes, but... But the Mac App Store seems, as you said, to have like bigger issues as far as one, you don't have direct access to your customer, but then with upgrades for software that you really, you know, that is selling at a higher price point, it just seems to be a hassle. And I don't know, like before I step into this, I'm like, as a new Mac developer, is it worth it or, or should I just go ahead and learn uh, how to set up a store and sell directly to my potential customers? Well, I will say that I've been in the apps, the Mac app store since day one. Before that was already selling an app outside the store. So I had already, you know, because at the time there was no other option, I had already figured out how to set up my own store and do license codes and all that. It's a little hard to compare. I would actually say that the app store did give me a boost in sales, especially at first because people were using it. It was the new thing. And I'm not really sure that's true anymore. I still sell about 50-50, I'd say, uh, app store sales versus you know, direct sales. It's really evenly split. I'm not sure what would happen though if I pulled out of the app store. Would, you know, would my sales go, overall sales go down or would all those app store sales just shift to my website? It's a little hard to say without trying it. That said, I, I'm actually, you know, all in all, I'm glad I sell on the app store. But if I were going to, if I were going to stop one channel, I would definitely stop the app store before I stop direct sales. 
And further than that, if I were starting a new app from scratch, I would not even sort of consider making it exclusive to the Mac App Store. I'm definitely going to sell it outside the store and then also possibly in the Mac App Store. But there are just so many advantages to having your app outside the App Store that I'm not going to give that up. Even if you're selling on the App Store, just being able to, for example, send your users beta versions that are outside the App Store is really nice. That's actually another big complaint about the App Store on the Mac is that there's no test flight. So if you're using any of the provision services that Apple offers, like um, iCloud or push notifications, that kind of thing, you, there's really there there are ways, um, you know, like the pre-test flight way of testing things, but it's so much harder than it is on iOS. And why not? Why not have test flight for the Mac? I think Apple said that test flight for the Mac was coming, but it was two years ago or something. And where is it? I also want to point out, though, that as a consumer, a lot of times I prefer buying my apps on the App Store because then it just comes in with one dialogue that says upgrade everything. And I go, okay, and then it's done, as opposed to getting the notification on every app when I open it saying, oh, there's a new version of this, too. Go upgrade it now. So, I mean, there there are also pros and cons for the consumers. And I think I, I know I've talked to a few people that won't buy it if it's not on the App Store unless they absolutely have to have it. So... I think there are some definite trade-offs one way or the other, depending on where your audience is and what you're doing. Oh, I completely agree with you. And that's one of the reasons why developers were excited about the app stores, because there, there are so, so many advantages for develop or for consume, you know, for customers. But I think that some of us feel like even those advantages have started to become not such a, not such a thing anymore. Like this thing where everybody's apps just magically broke one day. Well, that's definitely not a, a, an advantage when every yeah. single app you bought on the Mac app store no longer launches. Yeah, I can definitely see that as a, as a frustration. I'm trying to think Apple TV. We haven't talked about yet. Anything going on there over the next there, year? Uh, hopefully we get an app on the phone to control the television. Well, they did update the old remote app so that it works, but it's not, you can tell that they did sort of the bare minimum to make it work with the new Apple TV, but it doesn't take advantage of any of the stuff that is new about the app, the new Apple TV. So it's got the same sort of you swipe, but it's not like swiping on the new Apple TV remote. It's like using the old Apple TV remote on the new one where you kind of swipe to move one item at a time. And obviously there's some work to be done there to make it really a first class experience, but they did, they did add support for it. I think um, more broadly, the Apple TV has been my my impression is that it's been pretty successful. I certainly like mine a lot, um, and I have been using an Apple TV since the first one came out at the beginning of uh, 2007, I think. And um, I mean, they, they did a great job. They addressed some of my biggest complaints. The biggest of which was there was no universal search. So you know, I'd want to watch a movie. I didn't know if it was on iTunes or Netflix or whatever, and I'd have to just go look and check for it on each one, or you know, Google it. But now you can say show me such and such and it will tell you which service it's on. I do think though that probably at least for the foreseeable future the two big app categories for the Apple TV that will really be worth anything are games and, you know, video content apps. So Hulu and HBO and Netflix and and those sorts of apps. Nobody really wants to browse the web or check their Facebook account on their Apple TV. Right. At least I don't think so. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think uh, I haven't had the original, the older version of the uh, Apple TV as long as you have. I've had it for like two years, but I really am enjoying the new one. And I agree that the, the categories I'm looking to an idea for a game that I think may work, but I haven't gotten around to developing it. I don't do any shopping or any of the other types of things that I've seen as available. They just don't seem they don't seem interesting. 
I definitely don't want to go through the user interface and do a lot of those things. You know, consuming content like sports and movies, it seems perfect and it works really, really well. It is definitely a, an improvement. I just would like to be able to, to enter data a little bit easier from either my watch or my phone through the remote. Cool. I have one, but I haven't actually used it yet. <laughs> so got no thoughts there. Well, I got one of the free developer units. So, you know, how can you beat free? And I have, I do use it. Same here. And I'm enjoying it. It's been really good. Yeah. I think I, I'm going to start working on an app for it pretty soon here, but I've been playing around with one. It's nothing serious and it's nothing that I've really devoted enough time to, to actually get it wrapped up and shipped. But you know, all in all, it's not very different from developing for iOS and it's actually a really nice experience. Yeah. For me, since I actually create media, I think it would be nice to have an app on the Apple TV where people can listen to or watch the media. So, yeah, I, I think that's a great idea. Uh, you know, devchat.tv app would be really cool. Yeah, I think it'd be great. And then, you know, I can put up all my videos and things like that. So, and then for the audio, you know, it would probably look something like the Pandora app or something. Is there any other area of Apple or development that we want to talk about before we wrap up? Oh, there's plenty we could talk about, but nothing that I think we really need to. Yeah, no cars in 2016. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, I think that's going to ship in, you know, first half of 2017, right? <laughs> I'm not driving that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there you go. It had a bug, but it had an airbag. <laughs> yeah, I, I'll I'll wait till version two yeah. for the car. Yeah, same here. <laughs> All right, well, let's go ahead and get to the picks then. Alondo, do you want to give us some picks? Sure, I have two picks, and they are both travel-related. Uh, the first pick is the backpack that I'm using. I'm taking with me, uh, leave uh, for a year-long trip on Saturday, and it is the Tortuga backpack. It's uh, really nice. It's not that large. It fits in the as a carry-on, so I don't have to check it. And uh, I'm hoping to get pretty much everything, with the exception of a few items in the one bag. Uh, so I'm looking forward to uh, putting this through its paces in the next 12 months. And my second pick is uh, a world charger and power adapter that I need so I can power my MacBook and my uh, iPad while I'm on the road. It's from 12 South, and it's available from Apple, actually. So it's definitely something. It's got all the adapters that I think I'll need uh, as I'm going from country to country as well. So those are my two picks this week. All right. Andrew, what are your picks? Got two picks today. My first pick is iMovie, but but specifically the app preview feature in iMovie. So I, I didn't really realize this was in here, but uh, today I've been working on a, an app preview video for an iOS app that I'm working on, and um, you know this is basically where you record a video and then and then put it on the app store as part of your listing. Well, iMovie actually has built-in support for creating these, and it's pretty cool because they they added some specific features to make the make this whole workflow easier, and it automatically exports in the right format for the for the iTunes store and all that or for the app store. So that's so, iMovie with app preview or iMovie, iMovie support for app previews. My second pick is uh, actually an Apple TV app for the new Apple TV and it's called know it all. Uh, it's a trivia game that, you know, is meant to be played with, with your family and friends in front of the TV. Uh, you download an iPhone app. That's sort of like your buzzer, you know, where you buzz in with your answer. Um, and then it's sort of jeopardy style with a grid of questions, but I just think it's, uh, it's really well done. My wife and I have had fun playing it together. I, we've never done a bigger game, but I think you can do more than two players and they're, they're continuing to add new question packs. So there's a lot there. And, uh, I just think it's well done. It's one of the first sort of Apple TV specific games that couldn't really be done as well on another platform that I've enjoyed. So those are my picks. All right. So I've got a pick, but before I make my pick, I'm curious, 
Alondo on the 12 South plug bug world charger and power adapter. Uh, d- does it work in most regions of the world or do you know? It's supposed to work in most regions. Um, count on it because I'm going to be in most regions. So, uh, it was recommended to me by some other people who are traveling on the same trip. So, okay. I'm, uh, because I am going to be going to Europe next month. That's actually something that I wanted to mention really quickly. Um, so I want to just make sure that it'll work if I take it with me to Europe. Yeah, I think you're covered for Europe. I was more worried about my South American and right. Asian legs. Okay, sounds good. So uh, real quick, I just want to mention, I'm going to be in Amsterdam on the basically the 16th, 17th, 18th of February. Um, I'm going out there for the NG-NL conference. That's an AngularJS conference for those of you who aren't in the web world. But I'm going to be doing a meetup on the 17th in the evening. And yeah, Alondo's pick made me think, yeah, I might need to charge my laptop while I'm out there. So yeah, so I'll definitely be uh, adding this to my cart and uh, buying it. But anyway, so if you want to meet me, you want to hang out, uh, I'm not doing anything too formal. I haven't even picked a place yet. So you're probably going to either need to follow me on Twitter uh, my Twitter handle is cmaxw, or if you get on the mailing list for the show, if you go to ifreakshow.com and then get on the mailing list where you get the episodes, that will get you on the list where I also send out the announcement when I know where I'm going to be doing this uh, meetup. But it'll be somewhere in Amsterdam, probably pretty close to either the hotel or the conference venue. And anyway, so yeah, so I'm I'm excited about that, and I'm excited to meet people. So yeah, if you can get there, it'll be in the evening on the 17th. That would be awesome. I am also bringing cool little doodads that I'm going to be handing out. So if you have, just as a hint, earbuds with an actual cord on them or anything like that, then this is going to be pretty nice for you. So yeah, that'll that'll all be fun. While I was figuring all this out, I realized that I could not find my passport, which is kind of important if you want to leave the country and come back. And so uh, I looked around and I found out that if you expedite your passport in the U.S., it takes them three to five weeks. Well... I was doing this on Monday, January the 25th, and if the conference is on the 18th, then that's cutting it really close if they get get it in uh, as fast as they can. So I looked around and I found a webpage called Rush My Passport, and they actually will shepherd your passport through, and so I will be getting my passport next Monday. So it's actually going to go all the way through in about a week, and uh, that's with me mailing it on Monday. So uh, super happy with them. Uh, it did cost a few hundred dollars, but uh, totally worth it to get my passport in time to be able to go. And they wouldn't even book my travel until I gave them a, or sent them a copy of my passport, which is part of the conundrum. You know, otherwise they'd be booking me last minute on air, airlines to Europe. So anyway, rushmypassport.com is another pick. And finally, I know I'm pretty sure I picked this on the show before. But uh, lately, I've been using Trello for quite a bit of stuff, uh, mostly development projects. So I'm just going to pick Trello because it's awesome, and it's simple, and it's free. So yeah, so those are my picks. And uh, yeah, that's all I've got. So uh, we'll go ahead and wrap up the show. I do want to do a quick shout-out for iOS Remote Conf coming up in April. I'm going to try and rope these two gentlemen in and our other past guests and hosts in to speak. If you want to speak, the call for proposals is open. And uh, I look forward to seeing you there. If you're into Ruby, then check that out, too. If you're into freelancing, you have about a week to get the tickets before the conference occurs. So anyway, that's all my stuff. We'll wrap up the show, and we'll catch you all next week. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. 
deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.